the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Elna Schutz and this is the Science Inside. Yes, and I'm Lebohang Madisha with you today. So today on the show, it's all about a nasal spray, but this one isn't for your flu or even your allergies. It's not even for some kind of serious ear, nose and throat problem. No, this, and it's such an incredible story to me, this nasal spray could be a help and a comfort to people living with Alzheimer's disease. This disease is the most common cause of dementia and affects people's memory, thinking, behavior and emotion, and with it, of course, their lives. Yes, Alma, we all sometimes struggle to remember things or our mood changes, but imagine what a big effect this would have on your life if this was just this wasn't just an occasional thing, but it happened all the time and kept getting worse and worse until you didn't have much to even remember at all. I think there have been so many representations in movies of Alzheimer's disease or dementia in general. I, I think of The Notebook or, you know, in a series it might be funny when somebody keeps forgetting names. But if you think about it in practice, it sounds very scary. I would not want that to happen to me, that things sort of like float away. And as you say, you barely remember, you know, your children's names exactly. or your partner. It's a very scary thing. And I know you and I are maybe 40, 50 years away from that, but it is a reality for, you know, people who have their grandmother or maybe it's your uncle. And of course, you and me one day in our 60s and 70s when we're those cool, those cool grannies. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> so the organization Alzheimer's Disease International's last estimate i had a, a look at that um, just to see how many people are actually affected by this and um, about three years back that's the last estimate stood at about 47 million people worldwide living with some form of dementia of course especially alzheimer's and this figure how scary is this this figure is planning or they think it may double almost every 20 years from now so we definitely need some intervention on this Definitely. These stats are sounding a bit scary. And that's why this is a very exciting story that we have today because yeah. there's been a breakthrough recently. Oh, love it. So yes. excited. And it's from a professor from the University of the Witwatersrand, Professor Stefan Weiss. And he has developed a medicine that can hold back the the of Alzheimer's and as you hinted earlier it comes in the form of a nasal spray and we'll hear more about that and get deeper into it later in the show. Oh so exciting I mean there's talk of it being a cure you know and a nasal spray sounds so easy to use it's something you and I can easily understand exactly it's not some new technology that uh, is overwhelming and it's not like a therapy that has multiple processes before it actually works it's a simple thing that they just use a nasal spray oh I love it we're going to get into that later but in unscience that's the part of the show where we look at some strange research I do have some weird stuff for you I know we all don't like hiccups Lebo. I've never met a person hiccups are so annoying and they always catch you like when you least expect them like you're serious about doing something then 
hiccup like oh my gosh as long as it never happens while we're on radio i think <laughs> okay i don't think it has happened to me then you just hear lots of songs on the science and side until alma gets over her hiccups because you're focused hiccups <laughs> don't come like when you're really too focused on something well i'm really glad that you and i are not in the pool of people that i'll be talking about in unscience because i'm going to talk about a kind of hiccup that lasts for months even years. Excuse me. Yes, yes, even <laughs> decades. I really hope no. all the medical things that could happen to me, this is not one of them. Okay, I, I, that just sounds like a punked episode of life, like life just punking people, a whole decade of hiccups. That's crazy. But later in the show, we get to the bottom of another small medical device that looks like something from Star Wars. Oh, I like me some Star Wars, so I'm excited about that too. So much good stuff on the show. I would love to hear from you. Do you have a problem with hiccups? How do you feel about having hiccups for <laughs> several years? What do you think of the nasal spray that will hopefully help with Alzheimer's? Yeah, that's an amazing thing right there. Yeah, and are you a big fan of Star Wars and want to hear some Star Wars science? That's all on the show. Send us a voice note. Let us know what you think. But let's get into our science news. This week's Science Headline. As always, we just take a little bit, a um, little bit of time in the beginning of the show to catch our listeners up, to catch you up about what is happening out there in the world of science. What do you have for us today, Lebo? Today, I have a story which people can relate to because it's linked to an event that we just witnessed. But firstly, the story is from space.com and conversation.com. This story is about the blood moon. Ooh. Yeah. And I'm sure we all noticed the, com- the commotion rather over the lunar eclipse that occurred, whether it be through our social media outlets or we actually went outside to view it. We all saw it and we were all fascinated by it. I know it also became quite a festive event here on campus. Friday night was quite busy, hey? And it was an event most people were fascinated by. Did you see it, Lebo? Did you go out and check it out? <laughs> I'm actually ashamed to give this answer. No, I didn't go outside. <laughs> oh man, now you have to wait like 20 years. I know. I was just like, I was so into this physics problem that I was solving. I just couldn't leave it. So okay. yeah, I had to miss that. We'll allow physics problems. <laughs> to, to, I actually, I was a little bit late. I was at an event, but by the time I did, I did get out, I did see some of the redness especially and I sort of caught the last maybe few hours so basically when the redness was going back to it looking oh. like the moon so it did was you like beautiful. the view it was gorgeous oh. I did not try to photograph it Why because I, you know I don't want to be one of those people with my phone it's just a dot and you're like look guys it's so cool. <laughs> I saw the clips guys that red dot that's it <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that for the professionals but tell us a little bit more about the science behind it Okay, the lunar eclipse or blood moon that we witnessed was actually the longest of the 21st century. The eclipse was over an hour long. The actual events lasted a little bit longer. And we were among the countries that were in perfect view of this eclipse. So countries that were listed under the perfect view site were Africa, the Middle East, Southern Asia and the Indian Ocean regions. And it was seen very clearly from there. Now, a blood moon is a fascinating sight. But do we really know what it is? It's a moon that's red. Exactly. That's, no? that's all we really know. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's red, guys. It looks nice. 
Okay, so tell us about it. Okay, so the blood moon, the total lunar eclipse that we witnessed in July this year, occurs the same day that Mars shines at its best in the night sky. And this year, Mars was at its closest to Earth since 2003. I was in grade R then. <laughs> like, this is so real. Like, wow, the last time Mars was really close to us was when I was, what, five years old. And now I'm, let's not say that out loud. <laughs> anyway, five years old. <laughs> uh, the eclipse we saw on the 27th of July was completely safe to watch with our bare eyes. Unlike a solar eclipse, guys, don't try those things. Don't watch solar eclipse with your bare eyes. Get some real equipment or watch it on the internet. And it was a result of the moon passing the Earth's shadow. So it really meant no harm. Okay, so I think most of us as re- remember from high school or from primary school even about lunar eclipses. But why was the moon red as a result? Exactly, because it's going through like the shadow of the Earth. So like shadows are black. Why isn't it completely yes. black? Why is it red, right? So this is due to some of the sun's rays going through the atmosphere, being bent around the outline of the Earth, then shining onto the moon's surface. Then the Earth's atmosphere also scatters some of the shorter wavelengths of light. So your blues and your greens, they get scattered, leaving the redder spectrum shining onto the moon. And that's what we see as a blood moon. Oh, okay. I was actually expecting you to say something in relation to Mars because we have this ridiculous idea that Mars is like bright red which it isn't if you look at photos um, from NASA but I just sort of thought maybe it would have something to do with Mars (laughs) especially because they like it's linked to Mars's position relative to the Earth so you think okay Mars is close to us but reflection of Mars nah it's just the sun shining okay we have all this science but we're not the first to witness this. I'm sure back in the day, people thought the world was ending. Obviously, people always have stories about things they see. And there have been a couple of myths around this blood moon across many cultures. Most ancient civilizations believed that it was an evil event. I can so, see that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the moon is red like, ah, 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 we are dying, guys. Yo. So, yeah, that makes sense. But uh, Hindu folktales used to say the eclipse was a result of the demon Rahu drinking the elixir of immortality. Then, in ancient Mesopotamia, a blood moon was considered a, a direct assault on the king. And for many people in India, a lunar eclipse foretells bad luck. So, Oof. if you're in India, you're like, oh, what's, what's going to go wrong now? Oh, no. <laughs> And there are many other beliefs and interpretations associated with the lunar eclipse. But this is the science inside. So obviously, our little myth is a little myth called science. (laughs) Yeah. So we just base our facts on facts. (laughs) So why was this one so much longer? You mentioned that this was the longest of the 21st century. Yes, it was indeed. So imagine a cone, right, extending from the Earth in the opposite direction of the sun. Sure. This cone is called the umbra, and it is the darkest part of the Earth's shadow. As I mentioned before, the moon is passing the Earth's shadow for this eclipse to take place. So what happened during this eclipse is that the moon went right through the middle of the umbra. Ah. Exactly, extending the duration of the eclipse. 
The next lunar eclipse, though, if you guys missed this one, like me, is on the 21st of January in 2019. But there's one catch. It'll only be visible in North America. Yay! I'm not going to see the eclipse you're again. Gonna, you're going to have to buy a plane ticket if you're that keen. Yeah. Okay. Then you can flex on your friends when you see it. You know, like, yes, guys, I know some things about eclipses. Or should I say, you know, flex, solar eclipse them with your knowledge. No. No? Okay. <laughs> no puns. Shine on them with your with your knowledge. Come on. Okay. Okay. I'll allow that one. Yeah. So going from <laughs> the moon to the sun, um, let's jump to my my news story today from the world of science. Obviously it's winter right now, level and whether you have beautiful skin or a tan, nobody would know. Yeah, I know it's all covered up. Yeah. <laughs> but we live in hope. Yes. Spring is coming. There will be a time for bikinis and beach and all those good things. It's coming. And that means sunscreen, right? So people with lighter skin tones like myself unfortunately need to be very <laughs> careful about these things. Smother on that good stuff. But remember, everyone actually should be using sunscreen because even dark skin tones with higher levels of melanin, which is protecting you, even even those skin tones are at risk for sunburn and skin cancer. So, Lebel, be honest. Are you good at getting those SPFs, at using sunscreen? Honestly, I was at some point in high school when everyone had sunscreen at basketball practice. Then I realized it made me purple, so I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't want to look crazy. Well... Listen, I mean, maybe you should get back into it. But I have this recent study from King's College London um, that's saying even as sunscreen-loving people like myself, I'm pretty good with this because if I'm not, mm -hmm. then it's not going to look great for me. Thank goodness, <laughs> thank goodness I work on radio because otherwise you would be like, why is that red person trying to talk to me? So they looked at this and they said, you know what, even you illness out there who love sunscreen you may not be as protected as you think you are oh wow yeah it's not good so they looked at how much our dna gets damaged when you apply sunscreen but at lower thicknesses than the manufacturers recommend because honestly who's ever read the back of a sunscreen no one reads that we just take sunscreen and put it on right you just you just slather, like just throw it on it's fine right so normally manufacturers say you need about two milligrams per square centimeter which is what they use to calculate the spf which is the sun protection factor Instead, this study applied it at different thicknesses, usually less, and different levels of SPF, and they exposed their participants to UV rays over several days to mimic a typical, you know, like a typical sunny holiday. Okay, so they're trying to replicate the real way people use sunscreen? Yes, yes. Okay, what did they find from the study? So they did biopsies afterwards and checked how much DNA was being damaged and also compared it to skin that didn't have any protection on it, just as a control. So if you're using sunscreen in the normal way that most people do, even if it's a high SPF like 50 and you think you're the coolest kid on the block, you're being so careful, <laughs> this study showed that you're probably only getting about 40% of the sun protection you think you're getting Heaven. on the box. So the recommended dose of two milligram per centimeter square, as I said, did have much less damage, of course, because you're putting on more. But in practical terms, if you look at your hand, it's about like two five rand coin 
like splotches on your hand to cover just an area like your face. Wait, for my face only? Yes. Two five rand coins. Yes, that's no. what they're asking you to do. No, it was bad enough when I was purple, but now I'm just going to be like <laughs> white. white. What is this? I'm a little bit concerned about this too. So I don't know how they're practically expecting this to go down. It doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't sound right. Yeah, but hey, now we know. And the study really does show that we shouldn't just be taking sunscreen for granted, but really think of how we use it. And of course, the higher the SPF, the better. I've got to say, I would probably go with just putting it on more often than trying to look like a snowman with a thick, <laughs> thick layer of sunscreen. Like, I'm thinking about it practically, right? So say you're at the beach and then you apply this really, really thick layer of sunscreen. The minute you get onto the beach, you're just a sand man. Like, what's going on? <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. Hey, I mean, being covered in sand also, also protects too from UV rays, surely. But you look stupid now, like... <laughs> Hey, do you want to look stupid or do you want to look sunburnt? Uh, okay, I don't okay. want to look sunburnt. <laughs> <laughs> That's our science news for the day. Uh, my particular story w- was via Science Daily. And we now jump into our main story, a very exciting one right here from Wits University. Lebo, kick us off. All right. Earlier on, we spoke about the nasal spray curing Alzheimer's. Now we're getting into it. All right. They are about over 40 million people living with dementia in the world. In South Africa, approximately 1 million people are living with Alzheimer's disease. Recently, Prof. Stefan Weiss discovered a cure for Alzheimer's and it came in the form of a nasal spray, as mentioned before. This now is a remarkable breakthrough which could change many lives around the world. But this cure is not yet accessible and it still has to go through the clinical trial stage first. So while we await this clinical trial stage and approval of the nasal spray, Debbie Beach, an Alzheimer's um, psychologist from Alzheimer's South Africa, outlines what Alzheimer's is. Dementia is a syndrome. There are over 99 different types of dementia. Everything from Alzheimer's right through to motor disease is a type of dementia. Alzheimer's is a specific type thereof. So we get other different types. We get alcohol-related dementia. We get AIDS-related dementia. We get vascular dementia, which is normally people who've had a stroke or many strokes. And then we get Alzheimer's, and Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia. Alzheimer's is characterized by problems with memory, problems with communication, and problems with reasoning. You get two, um, two types of Alzheimer's. The first one is um, the Alzheimer's that we normally associate with older people, and that is people diagnosed over the age of 65. But then we also get an early onset Alzheimer's, which is a slightly different genetic mutation, and that disease can be diagnosed for as early as people in their 30s and 40s. They are both terminal illnesses. You can pass away from Alzheimer's. Dementia and Alzheimer's affect three main areas of one's of one's functioning. So the first one is your memory, particularly short-term memory. And the key thing with short-term memory is there's no recall. So I'm sure we've all done it. You walk into the kitchen and you think, why am I here? Oh yes, I wanted a glass of milk. People with Alzheimer's don't have the, oh yes, I wanted a glass of milk. That doesn't happen and that is quite significant. We all have memory problems over the years for various reasons. Stress and you know, emotions and various other factors. The second area that is affected is one's communication. 
So the ability to communicate becomes impaired. So they have word finding difficulties. The processing of the brain to actually absorb and process and understand what what I'm hearing and then processing a response becomes much, much slower. And often the responses to us are nonsensical to what is being asked. Um, and then the other, the third aspect is reasoning. And reasoning is also planning and executive functioning. So that's things like, um, you know, if, if something goes wrong and you have a surprise or if there's a traffic jam on the highway, we can make a plan B. We go an alternative route. We can problem solve. We use initiative. Those skills become impaired with, with Alzheimer's. So if anyone sees a loved one or somebody with any of those warning signs where those three areas are impaired, um, then I would recommend that they get it checked out. Okay, besides now illnesses like high blood pressure, diabetes and diabetes, increasing your chances of, of getting Alzheimer's, there's also an inherited gene known as APOE4 gene, which increases a person's chances of having the disease. But there's a bright side to this. The good news, though, is that having this gene does not definitely mean that you have Alzheimer's. Okay, that's good at least. Yeah. But that's good for people like you and me to know who have Alzheimer's as a small possibility in their faraway future. But what about people? What is if there's somebody in my life now already who has Alzheimer's? Okay, so if someone already has Alzheimer's, it's always good to keep them active in what they're still able to do. You know, the important thing with somebody with Alzheimer's is that they remain as independent and as functional for as long as possible. Um, so if they are still able to do crosswords, jigsaw puzzles, Sudoku, read the newspaper, they need to continue doing that for as long as they can. The time will come when they're no longer able to do those things. Okay, so we explored the symptoms of Alzheimer's earlier. But what can people with Alzheimer's, I mean, rather, what do they go through when a, per, when a person has Alzheimer's? What does a person experience? You know, Alzheimer's is such a uniquely individual illness. Um, but, you know, the main thing that they go through is the emotions. Because the emotions remain completely intact. And so the person knows they're acutely aware that they have a problem with their memory, that they're not functioning as well as they, they can or should be doing. They won't admit that to anybody. In fact, often they become a lot more stubborn um, with the disease. So their frustration levels are incredibly high. So imagine you've, you've been able to communicate, you've been able to be independent and functional and probably a very successful person through your life, and now slowly those skills are are going, you're losing them um, day by day. And so your level of frustration is very, very high um, because the person is acutely aware of what they are no longer able to do. In the, especially in the earlier stages, you know, as the disease progresses, um, they go more and more into their own world and they're not really aware of what is going on in our world. And we then have to go into their world um, and try and understand that. Um, and then they are not so aware of what they were used to be able to do. But in the early stages particularly, it's, it's very frustrating and very scary. Now that we know more about Alzheimer's, I think we're ready to know more about this possible cure that we've been talking about. So we asked Debbie Beach what the possibilities of the cure could mean to patients with Alzheimer's, and this is what she had to say. 
we are cautiously optimistic. And, you know, any kind of breakthrough in this field would be revolutionary. It would change the life of people with Alzheimer's. But um, I do believe there's still a, lot, a, a long way to go with the research. It's not at, at the human studies phase yet. But, you know, if, if, if this were to really happen, this, this nasal spray, it would be, it, it, it would be wonderful. There has been no cure for Alzheimer's disease until the recent breakthrough by the Witz researchers, which may possibly redefine this narrative. Prof. Stefan Weiss is a witty molecular and cell biology lecturer at the Witz University, and he shared his research journey that led to this discovery. We talk about the research, my research interests in the, in the past, so we're talking the last uh, maybe 30 years or so, we're on neurodegenerative disorders. So I kicked off, when was that? I think in 1994, 1995, uh, even earlier in my time at uh, the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, on, on prion disorders actually. So these are neurodegenerative disorders of the brain. Alzheimer's disease affects the brain and many of its activities, including memory function. A lot of research that has been conducted on Alzheimer's disease and Prof. Stephens shares what causes this disease. He explains that the disease is caused by protein buildup that happens in the brain. When we're talking Alzheimer's, um, yeah, that, is, that is a neurodegenerative disorder which comes with age, mainly with age. And uh, again here, the, the main problem is a protein aggregation in the brain. So in this case, it's not the prion protein, it's the amyloid beta uh, peptide, which is a small little protein aggregating in the brain cells. A recent breakthrough by Prof. Stefan and his research may offer a glimmer of hope to millions of patients living with this disease. I'm sure many of us are eager to know what this novel therapy is and how it actually works. What we actually did, we, um, we, we, we bought mice from the United States, we call them Alzheimer's mice, which have a mutation in one of these genes, right, uh, which are associated with Alzheimer's disease, and they develop Alzheimer's disease quite fast, in contrast to a normal mouse, which might not develop Alzheimer's disease at all, yeah, because mice don't live, live so long. So these mice had a mutation in, in uh, one of these Alzheimer's-associated genes and developed the disease quite fast, and what we did, uh, we, we applied our antibody directed against uh, cell surface receptor which is also seen inside the cell and um, in, into the nose, into the nostrils of these mice. So the, our thinking was, you know, when you, when you apply a drug orally, it has to go through the stomach, the intestine, and then has to go back up to the brain and past the brain, uh, blood-brain barrier. As you can maybe remember, it goes into the nostril, so this is vapor actually, it goes into the nostril, activates odorant receptors and then finally activates axons and, and uh, the, it is nerve endings, you can say it like that, which, which transport uh, then uh, the um, action potential straight to the brain. And when you apply something in the nose, yeah, like a substance, then it goes also straight through nerve endings to the brain. So you avoid the whole rest of the body. So when you want to treat these people, suffering from a neurodegenerative disorder, right? Uh, you want a substance which is 
easily to apply. So a nasal spray is easy. Tuff, tuff, two puffs. It works because these mice, which have been treated with the antibody directed against this laminin receptor, showed after a very quick time, so the article which says it correctly, eight weeks of treatment for fast improvement to be seen in the research mice regarding what? Regarding memory. So we did a couple of memory tests with these mice, so it's a puzzle box test for cognitive functions, uh, for example, and uh, other, other uh, behavioral and memory functions which we tested. So this nasal spray, it causes a, de- a decrease in protein buildup in the brain. This results in improved cognitive functions such as memory. Of course, every major drug discovery needs to go through different testing phases before it gets approved and hits the market. But how will this specific Alzheimer's drug be tested then? We've got all the details of these uh, Alzheimer's patients who, who wish to to uh, undergo the treatment and participate in a clinical study which we are working on at the moment. But when it comes to a clinical study nowadays, it's not an easy thing yeah, because we need approval for that. That's the first uh, thing from the government. And second, um, we need money for that. Yeah? And for that we uh, need a, a company which is interested to bring the product on the market, which is still seeking. Yeah? So I think there are some companies, big companies, interested I hear. Yeah? By the way, we also have a patent on that, so uh, the ways then uh, together with this enterprise on campus and uh, this Alzheimer's disease uh, patent on exactly this substance, right, has been, has been approved in the, in the United States, which is very good. Clinical trials are known to take a very, very long time. Many things may go wrong, but it's important to always maintain a positive attitude and confidence as a scientist who's on the brink of discovering a drug that may change the course of Alzheimer's disease. I'm a positive person. When you are a researcher and you set up an experiment, which is uh, an in vitro experiment, then you run an in vivo experiment on mice and then you run a clinical study on, 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 on people, then um, you are positive. Yeah. So, uh, okay, if it's not working out, it's, if it's not working out, but I would actually be surprised if it's not working out. I mean, the mouse is a model system. We are not a mouse, right? We're human beings, but we're just close to a mouse. So the mouse has not the intellectual capacities which we have. And uh, uh, But um, a mouse is a proper model system which is used for many other disorders like cancer. We are doing also cancer research and we're doing anti-aging uh, studies at the moment as well. So on, on mice, for example, and, and already saw that uh, mice which have been treated with a related substance, not the same as for Alzheimer's disease, but uh, they, they have also an improvement in memory and less uh, hair graying and less boldness and stuff like that. So that looks also very good. But coming back to the Alzheimer's study, um, we, we are very positive in that it is going to work. The study of diseases in general is very, very fascinating. It has the ability to change the course of people's lives. It's really amazing to see people like Prof. Stefan Weiss dedicating their whole lives to researching diseases and creating novel therapies to combat these diseases. We only hope for success, of course, for the clinical trials and the drug itself, as it will change millions of lives around the world. It's so exciting. I am proud that it came from our university, but also just in general, I love it when researchers are using 
ways that have a lot of very complex science behind them, but that are easy to understand and use. Definitely. So props to the team here. It's so exciting and, and we'll be happy to see this on the shelves or rather in, in, um, in the homes of people who have Alzheimer's and are suffering of this. We're still on the science inside. Next up, we get into our unscience. This is the Science Inside. So you may be familiar with this part of the show. It's where we look at the strangest side of research. We just look at things, level where you think really this is what scientists study <laughs> all those years for. This is ridiculous. Today's on Science was produced by myself. Let's get into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. So, Lebo, I have to ask you, how do you feel about this sound? (laughs) (laughs) Any strong feelings? I get really annoyed at the thought of it, like it could happen to me, but I find it funny when it happens to other people. Oh, okay, (laughs) that's true. I mean, hiccups, as as we've said before, hiccups are one of those things, it feels to me like I never think about them until they suddenly happen and you're like, Hey, but now why? Yeah, no, like, they always catch you like, Ha, I'm back, the hiccup, ooh, and you're like, oh, gosh. And it'll only ever, it'll never happen, like, while, while you're in your house, alone, chilling. No, but yeah. in the middle of a lecture, or, like, in the middle <laughs> of a Then you're that movie. person who's just, like, hiccuping the whole time, like, looking crazy, like, going up and down, <laughs> slightly off your seat, like, the worst thing for me is if it happens on the phone. Somebody oh. calls you and you're that awful person on the phone <laughs> that can't get through a sentence. But thankfully, your average bout of this terrible thing happens um, between four and 60 times a minute, which is bad enough. But it usually doesn't last that long, right? So basically just to cover the, the medicine or the science of this, what a hiccup is, is a spasm-like contraction of the diaphragm and sometimes the intercoastal muscles and those are the tiny ones between your ribs so this makes your glottis close which is the opening of your vocal cords and it cuts the inhalation of breath short giving us that lovely terrible sound and as we we already know this muscle movement happens involuntarily so let's be honest it's irritating level we all don't like it unless it's happening to other people but they don't last too long right most of us hiccup and forget but then they're so annoying when they happen it feels like they happen for so so long <laughs> it's so annoying well you're not going to think that after i tell you about our unscience today because there are persistent hiccups which is when they they last more than 48 hours more than two days um and there is an even worse Option, and this is what has recently been studied by Stasia Roos and Matthew Wozniak at the Department of Neurology at Loyola um, University in the US. It's called intractable hiccups. What? <laughs> oh no. Yes. So, guess how long those last? Okay, I'll, maybe like three weeks. <laughs> Longer than a month of continual just hiccups. All the time. Constant hiccups. All the time. No breaks for nothing. So, like, how do people drink water? Like, don't you, like, doesn't the water come back? Or, like, when you're eating? Yeah. Oh, my God. It is very problematic. So, can you imagine? And the Guinness World Record, of course, there is one. You have to. <laughs> Always. One, right? For the longest case of the hiccups has been non-stop 
for 69 years and nine months. Stop it! S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. No. Oh, so wow. much no on that. Like this person went into their retirement with hiccups. Yes, they oh, probably wow. had to put it on their CV <laughs> at this rate. <laughs> so it sounds funny, but in fact, it can be pretty serious and not just in the annoying way because obviously you're not eating and sleeping and all of that stuff quite normally when you have intractable hiccups. But the the problem here is really that, sure, you might get used to it for a little while, but never really. And the reason why it's important to look at this through a scientific lens is that these kind of long-term hiccups are usually linked to a deeper medical problem. So people with Parkinson's disease, for instance, and certain heart problems are more likely to get these long-term hiccups or even patients that use a certain medical drug. Oh, wow. This this whole show is so skin-deep while deeper than the skin. (laughs) Okay, so this is sounding very serious, but surely it can't be happening a lot. Well, in America, there aren't any stats for South Africa as far as I know, but in America, about 4,000 people yearly get hospitalized for the hiccups, believe it or not, of which the vast majority are older men. What I, and really like 90% of people that this happens to are older men. What I found really interesting is that the one form of hiccups that is far more likely in women than in men is psychogenic hiccups. <laughs> so that is when the root cause is psychological. Okay, that makes sense. Women think a lot. Like we genuinely... have to get hiccups for months. I'm never. not shocked. Like I'm genuinely not shocked because <laughs> I think about the thought processes as a girl that I go through every day. Like I think about so many things in detail and then I look, I think about it later. I'm like, yeah, I'm still thinking anyway. Uh, I think about it later and I'm like, yo, you really didn't have to think that much. It's not that deep. So right? just as rebellion, you start hiccuping. Okay, but, I've never, I've never <laughs> had hiccups as a result, but I'm not surprised. So uh, this research review um, found that it's actually far more common than doctors normally think. And part of why this is, or why it hasn't been studied before, is because cases of intractable hiccups end up in the offices of many different kinds of doctors and specialists. And then each of them treat these hiccups in very different ways. And, you know, with everything from hypnosis and, and acupuncture to medicine. Okay, so that's pretty crazy, hey? But what can we do if we get these hiccups and they don't go away? So for this serious kind of long-term hiccup, definitely treat it seriously in that it might be a sign of a deeper problem. If you know somebody who's been hiccuping for months, don't just think it's funny. Um, (laughs) The doctors on this research said there's definitely need for more research into the real causes and cures, but it's probably that there's there's something else going on but as to the normal kind that you and i get even the scientists don't have a perfect answer for you you can try drinking glasses of water from the at the side of the glass i don't know if you've ever tried that so if you've if you hold a glass of water instead of drinking it on the side that is closest to you like every human being does Uh try to to tilt your head over it. Oh, drink water upside down. Yes. Wow, they made it so complicated. That is the official recommendation. (laughs) There's all kinds of other things, including having somebody frighten you, biting on a lemon. There's lots of different kind of things. But that was our unscience for today, unusual and likely unscience around hiccups. I wish you many, many happy years. Without hiccups. Hiccup free. (laughs) Just on the science side. This is the Science Inside with Elma.
You're still on the science inside. This is the part of the show where we unpack something or try to get to the bottom of the science behind it. Earlier on, we spoke about a nasal spray that can slow down the progression of Alzheimer's disease. What a great little device once it's out on the market. Now we go to something else. But Lebo, first I have to ask you, are you a fan of Star Wars, particularly the movie The Clone Wars? No. <laughs> not at all yeah. they ruined my cartoon experience like I was just not okay I saw it on Cartoon Network and I'm like no this is not okay oh, okay <laughs> you and I can fight about whether Star Wars is the you know the best movie of all times some other day okay and I will probably win if you I'm think kidding. so <laughs> <laughs> but something really great about these kind of movies is that they do have some great scientific ideas in them sometimes obviously very futuristic but they can sometimes help us understand things that real scientists are working on so you may know how um, in the movie they make use of machines to create those epic sounds so imagine a small technological device being able to diagnose and treat diseases just by using sounds similar to that I know it sounds impossible, but there has been a new device developed to help and uh, help do this, diagnose and treat diseases in that way. Uh, we were talking about Alzheimer's earlier, but also cancer and other things. But of course, not everyone is going to believe this very easily. You are looking Honestly. at me very skeptically. <laughs> so we went out and asked some people, what do they think and would they use this kind of thing? I don't know if I would believe that such a device exists right now. Maybe for like small things, but doctors need huge machines to diagnose people for, for everyday things sometimes. I'd have to do my research. I'd, I'd be shocked. <clears throat> I'd really be shocked. I would want like a second opinion from someone much more professional. Okay, honestly, like those people in the clips, I'm finding it pretty difficult to believe. Maybe I've watched too much Star Wars, but I believe it. I can totally see that happening. Mm. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, this technological device developed um, using sound, just as the one uh, producing seismic changes normally released as weapons from the spaceship in the movies, and in this case, used um, with diseases. So, we spoke to Michael Pastema, a distinguished professor of biomedical engineering at um, right here at the University of Witz, to learn more about it. So since the movies make use of seismic changes made of certain gases, so does this device. This is where it all started. And I noticed that all my students are either Star Trekkies or Star Wars adepts. So you are probably wondering, why sound for diagnosis and treatment? Like everyone else, yeah, I am quite curious, but it's it's really interesting. Because light has been used, you know, yeah. um, x-rays, but sound is weird. So here's uh, Michael again. There is a high demand for affordable health care. And on the one hand, we demand to be healthy. It's it's seen as a, as a basic right. We are entitled to be healthy. On the other hand, we can't afford it anymore. So we are looking for easy-to-use technology that is not just uh, being applied in specialized hospitals and, and the, the, the top-notch private clinics, but can be used in bush clinics as well. So the reason why I think this technology has a future is that it's remarkably cheap to, to build. The thinking is hard. The, uh, the science behind it is quite complicated. But once we know the signal forms that, that work, uh, the materials themselves are 
well, uh, baked sand. It's, it's silicon and, and wires. Uh, sound waves are produced by piezoelectric elements. They, they can be harvested. They, they're natural uh, crystals that, uh, that you'll find in, actually in South Africa. So the technology is cheap and it can be, well, I don't want to say mass-produced, but produced on a bigger scale than uh, the competitors' MRI machines, CTs, etc. The other thing is, what's the use of diagnosis if you can't treat? Uh, I believe there's a high demand and uh, a, a, a big future for technology that integrates the diagnosis with immediate treatment in one device. That's the background and why it's necessary, but here's how it works. The use of a seismic charge to demolish uh, asteroid-like materials. Uh, I use that analogy to show how cellular structures, tumors and parasites can be destroyed with complicated waveforms and with sound waves. Uh, it's not just the sound that destroys tumor cells. It's, uh, sound is used to increase the uptake of chemotherapeutics, uh, but it also greatly affects the consistency of cellular membrane. Lebo, would you try this out? I mean, maybe. Sound being such a simple wave, it's... Yeah, it's something I would try, but sometimes things can go wrong. Yes, as with most things, there are risks. Therapy is, uh, uh, well, we call it curing and, and making healthy and getting better. But what, what we actually do, therapy is targeted destruction. And that targeted destruction is, is completely not subtle. Um, how, how common therapeutics work, uh, and, and not, not just chemotherapeutics, any therapeutic is poisoning healthy cells and as a side effect also killing some unhealthy cells. That's, that's how drugs are designed to work. What goes wrong is too much false hope. We're extending lives. In case of malaria, we may be able to detect at an earlier stage. Yeah, but it doesn't cure it. Or we may kill a high number of parasites. Yeah, but it doesn't make you better. As, so we have to be aware of the limitations of it. And what can be can go wrong, well, anything, if it's too intense, it ruptures materials. So well, we always need to take extra care. Despite the risks, the device can be trusted to help diagnose and treat diseases very excitingly. So the next time you tune in to watch some sci-fi movies, maybe level you'll get into Star Wars finally. Be sure to think beyond uh, just what you see there into the reality of how this might relate to science. Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the science inside. Label, we've had such a good show today. Everything from Star Wars to nasal spray against Alzheimer's to lots of hiccups. Yes. It's been a good one. A big thank you goes to all of our guests featured on the show today, including Michael Pastema, Stefan Weiss and Debbie Beach. Sound in some of the segments was by Ben Sound as well as Song Decompressed by Lee Rosevere. Today, our team behind the scenes is production by Gloria Mabuza and Harmony Malefe, tech by Kat M. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebochang Madisha. The Science Society is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We will be with you again next week. The Science Inside Podcast.